I'd like you to take a look at the people who are sitting around you right now. And if they don't happen to be sitting next to you right now, then I want you to just think of them in your own mind. That person who sits right next to you. Or maybe it's your, your husband or your wife with whom you're about to celebrate 10, 25, maybe 50 years of marriage. Congratulations. That's amazing. It's awesome. Maybe it is your children. Your children that you have cared for so deeply. The children that, that you cry sometimes, those happy tears. And maybe the, the last time that you cried those happy tears, maybe whether that was because they, they started preschool or they graduated college. Maybe it's your mom. Your mom who's always cared for you, nursed your injuries, always been there to give you a hug when, when a friend betrayed you, or your dad. He's encouraged you. He, he's driven you to be the very best that you could be in your life. He's laughed with you. Maybe even sometimes he's gotten into a little bit of trouble with you, but you know that he loves and cares for you or your brother. And even though everything is a competition for you, you're always trying to prove who's the best, whether it's at basketball or football or stuffing as many marshmallows as you possibly can into your mouth. And yet, you love each other deeply. You would face anything if you could face it together. Or maybe it's your sister you know, the one that you've braided hair together with and, and you've talked boys and when you've been sad and you've been down, she's always there to listen. She's always shown how much she cares for you. Maybe it's, maybe it's your best friend. That person that has been through thick and thin with you and the bond that you share, it almost seems like it is deeper than blood. You're looking at the person sitting next to you. And Jesus tells you that you need to hate them. Look at Luke chapter 14, verse 26. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. To love him, you need to hate them. And before you get up and you walk out the doors this morning, before you, you hit the pause button, you, you shut this thing down and you don't want to listen to another word of it, I hope and I pray that I still have your attention because I need to tell you why this is a good thing. When Jesus tells you to hate them, so that you can love them better. So that you can love them best. Confused? Right? It, it, I know, it's a paradox. It doesn't seem to make any logical sense, but maybe it makes some spiritual sense. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. 
You know, the words that Jesus uses here, they are jolting and jarring. I mean, he did that on purpose because he needed to arrest the full attention of the audience that he was speaking to, and he needed them to understand the cost of following Jesus. See, the cost to follow Jesus is all of your other gods. Including your family, including your friends, including those that you love and you care for in this world. Because anything or anyone, including family, from whom you seek love, you seek acceptance, you seek your, your worth and your value, and you try to find your identity in them, instead of God, that's an idol. And it needs to be destroyed. It needs to be thrown down, completely abolished. It cannot sit on the throne of your heart. See, that's when we need to hate family and friends. We need to hate them as God's. And so whenever our love for them or of them, whenever our love for our parents, our siblings, our family, our dearest friend, whenever that love gets in the way of our love of God, we need to throw it down. We need to cast that idol off the throne of our hearts and we need to love God first. And love God most. And when we love God first and we love God most, then, then we'll be able to love our family, our friends the best. Now, Jesus uses a strong word, hate, but the Bible is full of strong language that urges us to love our families, right? God's fourth commandment, is to honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. In Ephesians, the, the Apostle Paul writes to those Christians in that city of Ephesus, and he tells parents especially, he says, Fathers, all parents, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training of the Lord. You know, Jesus himself remarked how fathers, earthly fathers, they know how to give good gifts to their children. They know how to take care of them. Psalms reminds us that God places us in families to be loved and to love so that we aren't lonely. And so clearly, God urges us to love our families. Jesus is not telling you to love your families any less. But he is asking you to love him more. And so as you think about what Jesus asks of you, and when he says you need to hate father and mother, it's not about loving them less, but it may mean that you need to love them differently. Any of you where but shirts with buttons on them i do <laughs> almost every day 
And have you ever had that time when you, maybe it was a rush in the morning and you got dressed in the dark and so you couldn't really see, but you needed to get going. And so you grabbed your shirt, you threw it on, you buttoned it up, you ran out the door. And it wasn't until about noon when you finally looked in the mirror and you discovered that you missed that top button. And you misaligned it on your shirt. You put that through the second hole. And so now your entire shirt, it just looks like a whole silly mess. And you've been walking around looking like a fool who can't dress themselves all day long. No, that's just me. Or it can happen to all of us. It can happen to us when we get our loves out of order. And and when we have disordered love in our life, when we don't get that first love right, that love for God, it disrupts all of our other loves. And so I think you can see that as you think about our love that we have for others, whether it's our search for romantic love, whether it's the love that we have in our families, when it gets out of order, it can really get disrupted. It can hurt and harm those other loves. Then once again this week, we, we realize that these are all good gifts from our God. God gives incredibly good gifts. These are remarkable gifts. But the more remarkable, the more wonderful, the more beautiful a gift from God is, the greater the capacity it has to become an idol in our own hearts. And when we disorder those loves, the disruption is clear. Do you see how that comes through as you think about romantic love? No, we, as a culture, we have an infatuation with this kind of love, don't we? It almost seems like that has become the, the goal, the main pursuit of our lives. And so it's all over our media, you know, songs. How many songs are written about love? And in the, the 80s, I believe, there was a singer named Meatloaf. And he sang a song where he promised that he would do anything for love, including running into hell and back. Another one of his contemporaries, Robert Palmer, he, in his song, he asks us to admit that we are addicted to love. More recently, Taylor Swift has told her love story several different times and with several different versions It's a focus of our everyday lives. And we've come to believe that the great purpose of our lives is to find that special someone, get married, and live happily ever after, right? And that seems to be the goal. And yes, God has given us this incredibly good, remarkably good gift that we have the emotional capacity to love. But this this quest this obsession that we have with it in our culture, that's been invented by culture. 
It really isn't the main goal and main purpose of our lives. As much as we might see that it is, we might think that it is, we might imagine that if we don't find it, if we don't find that one connection, that one person to spend the rest of our lives with, well then we're destined to be miserable. Because Jerry Maguire tells us that we're incomplete without it. But it just simply isn't true. And if we think that way, it brings a lot of dangerous things. Have you recognized some of those dangerous things that it can bring? In the sacrifices that we are willing to make to gain that kind of love? In the abuse that we will allow to continue in our lives and to happen to us because we think, well, we're also getting love. In the way that we look and feel about our children. And as much as this is a modern concept, it's also ancient. And it shows up in the Bible. There's a remarkable account from God's people in Genesis chapter 29. As we heard earlier today, God has a a deep focus on the family life of Abraham. And for a very good reason, that would be the family through whom eventually Jesus would come. But Abraham's grandson was named Jacob. And Jacob, he got into some serious heat with his brother Esau, and so he fled his home. He went off to a distant country, and and there he ran into some distant relatives, and he met Rachel. And immediately, he was attracted to her. Immediately, he wanted to marry that girl. And Jacob was, he was willing to do just about anything for love. He said that he would work for Rachel's father, Laban, for seven years. That was his dowry, the payment for becoming Rachel's husband. So he sets the work. Seven years pass. Time is up. He's done the work. They're going to have the marriage. They're going to celebrate. They throw a great feast. But you know what? Laban was also willing to do quite a bit in the interest of love, the love that he had for his older daughter, Leah. And so he ensured that Jacob had a great time at his wedding. Lots of dancing, lots of toasts, lots of drinks. And as the evening turned into the early morning, and it was time to retire to their tents, they brought Jacob, his wife, in order that they could consummate the marriage. Except that it wasn't Rachel. It was Leah. And apparently, Jacob didn't notice until the morning. And when he woke up in the morning and he noticed that, he wanted Rachel. And so he said that he was willing to work another seven years to be married to Rachel. But Leah felt worthless, despised, and she craved Jacob's love. 
She pursued after that love, and, and, and when she couldn't get it on her own, then, then she thought maybe she could buy it with children. And so when she got pregnant, she was excited, but, but not just because of the blessing of a child. No, she was excited because of what this might mean for that pursuit of love. And so when she named her first son, she named him Reuben, and then she explained that name. It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. He didn't. He still loved Rachel more. And then her second son, she named Simeon. And again, she explained the name. She said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. Her third son, she named Levi. And again, explaining the name, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Like the very names that she gave to her children pleaded with Jacob to show his love to Leah. But that plea fell on deaf ears. And so as Leah was looking to other people for her worth, her value, her identity, as she was looking even to her children to, to give her that value, she was terribly disappointed. And can you imagine the twisted implications of that? Can you imagine the resentment that would have grown in her heart, not only against her husband Jacob, but also against her children? Who were supposed to win that love for her? And maybe you can see a little bit of yourself in Leah. Now, to whom do you look to complete you, to make you whole? To whom do you look to, to find your identity and your worth and your value? And is it anyone other than God? Because if it is, you'll be terribly disappointed. And you're also going to be disappointed when you seek to create heaven on earth through your family. There's another thing that we can do. We can take this good and gracious gift from God and yet we can try to create our own little heaven by our perfect family. And so then our children, they begin to have the ability to control us because then your children, they can either bring you peace or anxiety and anger. Or they can bring you joy or frustration and disappointment. And our children, they too can lose their freedom. Anyone ever try to live vicariously through their kids? And when we place this immense pressure on them to perform, them to succeed because we have wrapped up our own identity in how well they do, the life that they live, what college they attend, 
What career they land? Again, we can become terribly disappointed because we're looking to our kids for our own value and our own worth. And it really highlights to us the greatest and the most dangerous love that we can have in our life. The, the greatest, most dangerous idol that we can set up because of love, and that is the love of me. It's no accident that when Jesus speaks these words, he also tells us that we need to hate our very own lives. Because that might be the God that we put on the throne of our hearts more often than any others. And when the God of me has become the idol in our hearts, it produces arrogance. Because we worship our authority our ability to be right, to make the decisions for our own life. But conversely, it also produces insecurity, right? Because if you're God, well, then you cannot be shown to be a failure, to be a sham. It produces defensiveness. Because when you worship the God of me, then any kind of criticism, whether little or small, even if it's constructive, it feels like a personal attack. And in the end, the God of me creates loneliness. Because the God of me can't stand to have anyone else on the throne. Which is exactly why Jesus says these words to you, because Jesus wants to save you from arrogance and defensiveness and insecurity and loneliness. And so Jesus points out to you the cross that you need to bear, the suffering that you might go through and what it takes to follow him. Because Jesus wants you to know the greatest love that there ever is. His. He wants you to know his own love. And Jesus knows what he's talking about. You know, Jesus never sought out romance. He never planned out his marriage. He didn't think about the the future that he would have. Because what he pursued was your redemption. What he planned was the cross. What he thought about in the future was your salvation. Oh, Jesus didn't think about his children and, and what they would eventually become and what, how they would eventually succeed because he always thought about all of God's children and how they might become his own brothers and sisters through the blood that he would shed. You know, Jesus demonstrated the greatest love that we can ever find. This is the incredible love that he has shown to you and to the world. And unlike Meatloaf, he didn't just promise that he would run into hell and back. He actually did it. He ran into the very depths of hell for us. He didn't just claim that he would do anything for love. He did everything for you. Out of his love for you, he picked up his own cross and he carried it for you. You know, Jesus once said that the greatest of all loves was to lay down your life for another person, and then he proved it. 
That's exactly what he's done for us. And so Jesus holds out to you a hope that never disappoints. He holds out to you an identity that is full and free. He gives you the greatest worth and the greatest value because it was his own precious, holy, and innocent blood that bought you back from all of your sin. And so when Jesus calls you to find your identity in his own sacrifice, you are then free. You are then free to love your family, your friends, even yourself. You're free to love them best when you love God first and most. There's more to the story of Leah. Leah had uh, another son. And when she named this son, she gave him the name Judah. She made a different choice. And she explained that name. She said, this time I will praise the Lord. And that's what Judah means. Praise the Lord. She chose not to find her worth or her identity or her value in her husband, in her children, but in the Lord himself and the good and gracious gifts that he had given. Your value, your worth, your identity has nothing to do with the people who are surrounding you. It has everything to do with your God who has redeemed you, who loves you, and so I want you to look at those people again. The person sitting next to you, the person that you love. I want you to look, and as you think about God's own love for you, I want you to realize how now you have been freed to love them best when you love God first and most. Amen. Amen.